Hey, are you into werewolves, mad scientists, and a little bit of witchcraft? Then stay tuned for an all-new episode of Watch Corner. We're riding this train straight into the sun. Woo! Tune in to a classic episode of Watts Corner on the Seltzer Kings Network. Available on all podcast platforms. VH Investigations, Part 1. An original audio fiction written and performed by Dave Bledsoe is a part of the What the Hell Were You Thinking podcast Spooktacular 2023. Copyright 2023. All rights reserved. New York City, present day, somewhere on the outskirts of Brooklyn after midnight, a single black car is parked beneath a conveniently burnt out streetlight. I know that's a stupid thing to say, but it's what was on my mind. The front bucket seat of a 97 Ford Crown Victoria is made for comfort. A generation of cops and cabbies will attest to that. The Ford Motor Company had put a lot of thought into the design because they knew that their main customers would be men, well, mostly men, who spent a lot of hours at a stretch with their asses planted in them driving around. But even the best-made design couldn't stand up to 16 hours of being in it leaving it only to take a piss. So my ass hurt from sitting. I twisted around, trying to ease those muscles in my lower back and also trying to reach for the big Stanley thermos that I kept back there for nights just like tonight. The start of a shift, I fill it up three quarters of the way with some scalding hot bodega coffee. Then I top the rest of it off with Jameson. Truth is, I, I probably drink too much, but who the fuck cares? Not hurting anyone but me. And I'd long ago come to grips with the part where I was never going to reach retirement age because people in my line of work, they don't retire. Either drop dead on the job or they're killed doing the job because it's a hard old life. What's the job? That's probably what you're asking about right now. Well, it's kind of hard to explain, really. It's part private eye, part bounty hunter, part, well... You're probably not ready to hear about that part just yet, so let's just work with those first two for now. What I do is I hunt for things, and when I find them, I take care of them. Quietly, efficiently, and permanently. It pays surprisingly well, 
and I can live comfortably during the long intervals between jobs, and that's a good thing because it's what you call a very limited market for what I do. And all of my clients are strictly word of mouth, and all of them insist on total and complete discretion from me. So it's not like I can advertise. On this particular night, I was in the ass end of Brooklyn. Somewhere right on that line between Carnarcy and the Flatlands. You see, it's a part of Brooklyn that had seemed to have been skipped by the gentrifiers and the influencers and the Airbnb vultures because this particular stretch of streets was nothing but rows and rows of warehouses. It was the kind of place the Mafia loved to do their private and bloody work inside. Mafia was gone, but the warehouses were still here, most of them empty, probably being used as some kind of tax write-off by what's left of the Mafia, or more likely a hedge fund. It was three weeks ago when this client, who was going by the name of Terrence, it's not his real name, but they never are, he had shown up in my office, which was a corner table inside of a bar that's called Finnegan's Wake in Weehawken. Yeah, don't bother looking for it on your Google map. You won't find it. It doesn't have a liquor license. They don't want new customers, and they don't advertise. I owned a piece of the wake, which is why it was my office. It was a place that never saw anything, so it could never say anything. Now, how these meetings would work were pretty simple. I had a simple, generic-sounding Gmail address because I live in the 21st century. The client would email me a single line, usually some variation of usual place and usual time, and I would go and sit at my table at the wake, and the client would show up there. That night, the client was Terrence. He was an effete little man, dressed in a very expensive Italian suit that would have been more at home in a midtown cocktail bar than in the grimy shithole that was the wake. It was his hair that made Terrence stand out. It was so neatly trimmed and styled that it made Patrick Bateman's quaff and American Psycho look shaggy and unkempt by comparison. And he sported a genuine pencil-thin mustache. He was the platonic ideal of a European investment banker, including the non-specific European accent. And almost all of my clients were some variation of Terrence, and they all had the same affectations. There is work, Terrence said as he sat down at my table. Well, no shit, Terrence. I didn't think you'd come all the way to Weehawk and just to have a nice chat with me, I grumbled. Terrence didn't smile. He didn't even blink at my reply. He just slipped a large envelope across the table and said, It is a Russian job. Oh, of course it is, I muttered. The Russians were a consistent problem in the business. It's like their entire national identity centered on being problematic sons of bitches. New or old, I asked. Terrence sighed softly at that and said, Old and very dangerous. Shit. I thought you said your people had dealt with all the old ones in Russia. We missed one, Terrence replied, rather curtly, I thought. And now I'm the one that has to go clean it up, I grumbled. I believe it was one of your famous Americans, Don Draper, who said that is what the money is for. Of course, Terrence would be a fucking fan of Mad Men. Double the fee. Old ones are double the fee. And Terrence merely shrugged. 
So I said, does it have a name? Not that we know of. As I said, it is very old and very dangerous, Terrence replied without a trace of emotion in his voice. A fucking nameless old one. I ought to charge a triple. We will pay triple, Terrence replied, his eyes narrowing. You will need to be very careful with this one. Even the other old ones who signed the agreement are frightened of what it can do and what it might mean if it becomes unmanageable by normal resources. I stared at Terrence for a good long minute after that. I'd done dozens of jobs from over the years, and he never said anything quite so ominous. Is there anything else you want to tell me? What we know is all there in the package. He indicated the envelope rising to his feet. Good luck, Peter. Be careful. We would hate to lose someone so useful to us as you've been. And just glided away into the darkness. Watching where he just more or less effectively disappeared, I thought to myself, yeah, I fucking bet you would. I looked at the dash clock in the Vic. It was almost 3 a.m., and I'd been parked in this spot for about two hours, and that's way too long to stay in one place. So I started up the Vic and pulled into the street and drove a long, slow circle around the block. My eyes kept flickering back to the painted-over windows in the warehouse I'd been watching. There wasn't a single light inside, which makes sense because no one was supposed to be using the place, and even if they were using it, there was a fresh black coat of paint on the said windows, and that told me all I really needed to know about the place. Most of these old warehouses in the neighborhood had some kind of paint on the windows. That was a legacy of the days when the mob would use them to stash stolen trucks or chop up the body of a rat for dump disposal and fresh kills. But the years had seen that paint flake and fade and peel off. Someone had applied a fresh coat of very black paint to the windows of this place. And in addition to that, all the windows were now very firmly closed. Another hint that someone was using the place for something. The envelope Terrence had gave me was 20-odd pages of neatly typed information along with a couple of glossy photos taken by an indifferently talented photographer on a very long telephoto lens. They mostly consisted of a shipping manifest from a sketchy freight company originated out of Riga in Latvia that had taken a cargo container from a Russian trucking company containing various machine parts, with attended customs paperwork dated just before the war in Ukraine had kicked off. The manifests were written in Russian Cyrillic, which I could read, but badly, and Latvian, which I couldn't, but Google Translate could, and Google Translate told me that the shipment originated in some town in the Urals and transmitted through Moscow to Riga, and from Riga, the shipment made stops in Finland, Portugal, and Morocco before arriving in the port of Newark about six weeks ago. At the port of Newark, a Russian-owned trucking firm had picked up the container and drove it directly to the warehouse in Brooklyn that I was currently circling. I pulled the Vic into a shadowy spot and turned it off, and I pondered getting out to walk around to rest my aching ass, but decided to wait. I just moved around too much, and that kind of thing draws attention. The other pages were slightly more interesting. Terrence's people had done some homework, or more likely they just asked some old fucker to recall what they knew. 
The closest thing they had for a name for this one was the Beast of Pripopliarny. Figures. All the Russian ones are named some shit like that. He was first mentioned in some folk tales as far back as around 1650 or so. The peasants reporting some terrible creature that stalked the night in the high mountains and came down to the villages to steal virgins. You know, the usual shit. Apparently, things had gotten bad enough that by around 1790 or so, the Russian church had convinced the Tsar, or in this case, the Tsarina, none other than Catherine the Great, to dispatch the beast. So she sent three dozen soldiers and a couple of priests out in search of it, only to have one of them come back, a priest by the name of Grigori. I think most Russian priests in those days were named Grigori, and naturally, Grigori was totally insane when he finally got back to St. Petersburg. And he told of a great dark figure that swept from the sky and plucked men from their feet, only to drop their corpses back to the ground when it was finished feeding. There was no follow-up, because Catherine the Great's reforms, such as they were in Russia, had ushered in what passed for the Enlightenment in Russia, and after that, no one was much interested in chasing peasant monsters in the Urals anymore. The most interesting nugget was a Soviet-era report that detailed wild stories of a Russian troop train that got stuck in a winter storm growing across the Urals in late 1943 on the way to the front. According to the NKVD, the train was in a pass when the avalanche blocked the tracks. So the soldiers were ordered out to start shoveling the tracks clear so they could keep moving when something attacked them in the night. Over a dozen men went missing. Three of them were found dead the next morning with their throats ripped out, and the rest were never seen again. The NKVD chalked that up to wolves and desertion, executed an officer and a couple of sergeants, but the train was stuck just a few dozen miles from a nowhere spot on the map called, you guessed it, Propliarny. I don't even know if I'm pronouncing that right. And that was it. No true names, no details on how it worked, or if it was even rational, if such things could ever be said to be rational, because a lot of times the old ones just were unthinking machines that worked off sheer appetite, and they uh, kind of lost touch with anything resembling humanity and existed basically only to feed on the blood of humanity. So by now, I guess you're probably getting kind of the gist of what my job is. And you're probably wanting to know, how the fuck did I end up doing this? He said his name was Bertie. And he looked like a Bertie. He was short, stout. Well, was bordering on fat. Ball, what little hair he had left was gone gray. He smoked cheap cigarettes and he smelled like he bathed in garlic sauce. I would learn later there was a reason for that. I'd just gotten off shift at the 30th precinct in Harlem. There was a cop there. And I was leaning against my car trying to wake up enough to drive home after working a double. He walked up to me, stuck out his hand, and he said, You look like a man that wants a new job. And he wasn't wrong. Just a few minutes before, I'd watched several of my fellow NYPD officers arrested right there in the fucking precinct house by the chief of police and internal affairs for being dirty cops. Now, I had known that they were dirty. Maybe not exactly how dirty. 
I personally wasn't involved, or at least not involved enough to get arrested, but I had decided that morning that police work was no longer the job for me. So, having this little dude walk up to me and say that after a double shift and a shocking morning might have freaked me out. But you know what? He was right. I did want a new job, and I was willing to listen, and what Bernie was going to tell me was kind of fucking unbelievable. What do you know about private investigations? Bernie asked over eggs and coffee at a Morningside Heights diner that had recently become a prominent feature in a very popular network sitcom by a different name, albeit. I looked at him in his rumple suit coat, his tie pulled down to the center of his chest, and I said, I know that it doesn't pay very well and mostly involves sneaking around following dudes fucking on the side. Easily, easily, he said, shoveling hash browns into his mouth and talking around the mouthful. Well, this is a different kind of PI work. Very specialized. Very private clients. Very well-paying clients who value special skills and the utmost discretion. Oh, for fuck's sake, Bernie, I said. I've been up all night. My buddies are going to jail. And I just want to have a beer and go to bed. Bernie waved his fork at me and said, Did I mention the part about how well paid it was? And I rubbed my eyes and took a sip of my coffee. Bernie pulled out a little green bottle of Irish whiskey and waved it at my coffee cup, so I held it over to him and he filled it up with a little bit of it. I work for a firm that recruits what could best be described as independent contractors under the umbrella of the company. We refer clients to you and take our payment from the referrals, not from what they pay you. Who you work for and how you do the work is entirely up to you and the clients. All we do is find the people with the skills and provide your names to the people who pay us. You follow? Uh-huh, I said. Now's the part where you tell me that this is all perfectly legal and above board. Bernie then tipped his bottle of Irish whiskey into his orange juice in what I could only describe as a shocking crime against humanity and grinned at me and said, Well, that depends on what you mean by legal. I mean, you file taxes. Even in our line of work, Uncle Sugar gets his cut. But you won't be asked to testify in court or anything like that. Or, you know, mention what you really do in any kind of official capacity to any kind of official personages. Okay. I stood up. Thanks for the eggs, Bernie, but I'm going to head out. Your grandfather was named Abraham, right? Bernie cut me off. How did you... I started. He was a private investigator in Philly, right? Bernie continued as I nodded. Your dad told you that his dad was pretty old when he married and then had your dad, and that he didn't know much about what his dad did for a living, right? What the fuck? Oh, okay. None of this is nothing a good P.I. couldn't have found out. What are you going on about, Bernie? I'm saying that your grandfather worked for my firm, and that his uncle worked for us, too. It's kind of like a family tradition in your family going back a ways. I'm saying... That you go home, and you call your dad, and you ask him about a leather case that he got from his dad with a combination lock on it, and you tell him that the combination is 1897, and see if that opens it. 
And, uh, what will I find inside, Bernie? I ask with sarcasm dripping from my voice. Some sort of, uh, secret code or symbol that'll gonna let me know my legacy in a Luke Skywalker kind of fucking hero's journey? You'll find one of these, he said. Slide in a silver business card with the initials VHI engraved on the front of it. Fucked if there wasn't exactly what Bernie said would be in there. My dad had never been able to open the case. His dad had left it to him and he just put it away in a closet someplace and more or less forgot about it. But a few days later, when I called my dad, he dug it out, opened it up, and called me back. This was kind of a little shaky when he told me the only thing he found inside was a small silver business card with VHI engraved on the front of it. I called back the number engraved on the back of the little card that Bernie had given me. A week later, Bernie and I were sitting at a bar, a very shitty dive bar called Finnegan's Wake in Weehawken, New Jersey. Bernie was more than a little drunk. I would learn later that also there were reasons for this. And Bernie was explaining to me that the two of us were distantly related. Third, fourth, some shit cousins, mothers, best friends, fucking roommate kind of thing. I don't know. I don't understand it at all. But the main office keeps track of all that. That's how we find our contractors, because we're all related. He poured himself another shot and offered me one, which uh, I took. As I understand it, it's sort of a family business, but not really because the company is owned by some kind of syndicate, shell companies, and that kind of shit. I don't ask a lot of questions because, honestly, I, I don't want the answers. Well, I kind of want the answers, I said, knocking back the shot. No, Bernie replied almost soberly. You'll find you really don't. What you need to know is pretty simple. We, us, the family, whatever the fuck you want to call it, we got a knack, a gift you could call it for the work, and uh, we've been doing it for, I don't know, centuries, I guess. A uh, gift for what? Killing vampires. Bernie said, pouring himself another shot. All right, I said, I'm out. I stood up, and Bernie grabbed me by the arm and pulled me back down onto the stool. Not all of them, just the ones the other vampires tell us to kill, Bernie said, staring dead serious into my eyes. All right, Bernie, whatever the fuck your name actually is, I don't fucking know what this is all about, but I'm done here. However that card thing was done, just fuck off and never call me again. I stood up, and that's when... Ethan sat down at the bar next to us. Ethan, I mean, that wasn't its name or his name or whatever their name. I don't fucking know what genders were. They all changed names, faces, and genders like you change your underwear. But Ethan looked like a fucking vampire. Pale skin, red eyes, fangs. Dude had fangs. Straight out of a black and white Lugosi movie. He grabbed my shoulder with one hand, an ice cold fucking hand, and an inhumanly strong one, and pushed me back down on the stool. Now, I wanted to jump back from him, but you see, he had looked me right in the eyes, and now I was not capable of moving, incapable of speaking. For lack of a better word, and if you want to be all vampire about it, I was in his thrall. That is how I learned 
that fucking vampires are real. And you can probably imagine how I felt about that because you're probably feeling that right now if you're believing a word of what I'm saying. Which, I don't know, that's up to you. That's not my problem. VH Investigations is an original audio fiction. Any resemblance to any persons living, dead, or undead is unintentional. It's written and performed by Dave Bledsoe, executive produced by Kimberly Steele, and produced by Gavin St. James for the Seltzer Kings Podcast Network. The show music is Noches de Insomnio. See the show notes for a link to their YouTube page. Part 2 will premiere in this feed next week.